Chapter Twelve, Part Two of Industrial Biography, Iron Workers and Toolmakers by Samuel Smiles. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Clive Catterall. Henry Maudsley, Part Two. One of the first uses to which Mr. Maudsley applied the improved slide rest, which he perfected shortly after beginning business in Margaret Street, Cavendish Square was in executing the requisite tools and machinery required by Mr. afterwards Sir Mark Isambard, Brunel, for manufacturing ship's blocks. The career of Brunel was of a more romantic character than falls to the ordinary lot of mechanical engineers. His father was a small farmer and postmaster at the village of Hackville in Normandy, where Mark Isambard was born in 1769. He was early intended for a priest, and educated accordingly but he was much fonder of the carpenter's shop than of the school, and coaxing, entreaty, and punishment alike failed in making a hopeful scholar out of him. He drew faces and plans until his father was almost in despair. Sent to school at Rouen, his chief pleasure was in watching the ships along the quays, and one day his curiosity was excited by the sight of some large iron castings just landed. What were they? How had they been made? Where did they come from? His eager inquiries were soon answered. They were parts of an engine intended for the great Paris waterworks. The engine was to pump water by the power of steam, and the castings had been made in England, and had just been landed from an English ship. England! exclaimed the boy. Ah, when I am a man I will go and see the country where such grand machines are made. On one occasion, seeing a new tool in a cutler's window, he coveted it so much that he pawned his hat to possess it. This was not the right road to the priesthood, and his father soon saw that it was of no use urging him further. But the boy's instinct proved truer than the father's judgment. It was eventually determined that he should qualify himself to enter the Royal Navy, and at seventeen he was nominated to serve in a corvette as volontaire d'honneur. His ship was paid off in 1792, and he was at Paris during the trial of the king. With the incautiousness of youth, he openly avowed his royalist opinions in the café which he frequented. On the very day that Louis was condemned to death, Brunel had an angry altercation with some ultra-republicans, after which he called to his dog, Viens, citoyen! Scowling looks were turned upon him and he deemed it expedient to take the first opportunity of escaping from the house, which he did by the back door, and made the best of his way to Hackville. From thence he went to Rouen, and succeeded in finding a passage on board an American ship, in which he sailed for New York, having first pledged his affection to an English girl, Sophia Kingdom, whom he had accidentally met at the house of Mr. Carpentier, the American consul at Rouen. Arrived in America, he succeeded in finding employment as assistant surveyor of a tract of land along the Black River, near Lake Ontario. In the intervals of his labours he made occasional visits to New York, and it was there that the first idea of his block machinery occurred to him. He carried his idea back with him into the woods, where it often mingled with his thoughts of Sophia Kingdom, by this time safe in England after passing through the horrors of a French prison. My first thought of the block machinery he once said, was at a dinner-party at Major General Hamilton's in New York. My second under an American tree, 
when one day I was carving letters on its bark. The turn of one of them reminded me of it, and I thought, Ah, my block! So it must be. And what do you think were the letters I was cutting? Of course, none other than S.K. Brunel subsequently obtained some employment as an architect in New York, and promulgated various plans for improving the navigation of the principal rivers. Among the designs of his which were carried out was that of the Park Theatre in New York, and a cannon foundry, in which he introduced improvements in casting and boring big guns. But being paid badly for his work, and a powerful attraction drawing him constantly towards England, he determined to take final leave of America, which he did in 1799, and landed at Falmouth in the following March. There he again met Miss Kingdom, who had remained faithful to him during his six long years in exile, and the pair were shortly after united for life. Brunel was a prolific inventor. During his residence in America he had planned many contrivances in his mind, which he now proceeded to work out. The first was a duplicate writing and drawing machine, which he patented. The next was a machine for twisting cotton thread and forming it into balls. But omitting to protect it by a patent, he derived no benefit from the invention, though it shortly came into very general use. He then invented a machine for trimmings and borders for muslins, lawns, and cambrics, of the nature of a sewing machine. His famous block machinery formed the subject of his next patent. It may be explained that the making of the blocks, employed in the rigging of ships for raising and lowering the sails, masts, and yards, was then a highly important branch of manufacture. Some idea may be formed of the number used in the Royal Navy alone from the fact that a seventy-four-gun ship required to be provided with no fewer than one thousand four hundred blocks of various sizes. The sheaved blocks used for the running rigging consisted of the shell, the sheaves, which revolved within the shell, and the pins which fastened them together. The fabrication of these articles, though apparently simple, was in reality attended with much difficulty. Every part had to be fashioned with great accuracy and precision to ensure the easy working of the block when put together, as any hitch in the raising or lowering of the sails might, on certain emergencies, occasion a serious disaster. Indeed, it became clear that mere handwork was not to be relied on in the manufacture of these articles, and efforts were early made to produce them by means of machinery of the most perfect kind that could be devised. In 1781, Mr. Taylor of Southampton set up a large establishment on the River Itchen for their manufacture, and on the expiry of his contract the government determined to establish works of their own in Portsmouth Dockyard, for the purpose at the same time of securing greater economy, and of being independent of individual makers in the supply of an article of such importance in the equipment of ships. Sir Samuel Bentham, who then filled the office of Inspector General of the Naval Works, was a highly ingenious person, and for some years had been applying his mind to the invention of improved machinery for working in wood. He had succeeded in introducing into the royal dockyards sawing machines and planing machines of a superior kind, as well as block-making machines. Thus the specification of one of his patents, taken out in 1793, clearly describes a machine for shaping the shells of the blocks in a manner similar to that afterwards specified by Brunel. 
Bentham had even proceeded with the erection of a building in Portsmouth Dockyard for the manufacture of the blocks after his method, the necessary steam engine being already provided. But with a singular degree of candour and generosity, on Brunel's method being submitted to him, Sir Samuel at once acknowledged its superiority to his own, and promised to recommend its adoption by the authorities in his department. The circumstance of Mrs. Brunel's brother being under-secretary to the Navy Board of the time probably led Brunel, in the first instance, to offer his invention to the Admiralty. A great deal, however, remained to be done before he could bring his ideas of the block machinery into definite shape. For there is usually a wide interval between the first conception of an intricate machine and its practical realisation. Though Brunel had a good knowledge of mechanics, and was able to master the intricacies of any machine, he laboured under the disadvantage of not being a practical mechanic, and it's probable that, but for the help of someone possessed of this important qualification, his invention, ingenious and important though it was, would have borne no practical fruits. It was at this juncture that he was so fortunate as to be introduced to Henry Maudsley, the inventor of the slide-rest. It happened that a Monsieur de Bacancourt, one of the French émigrés, of whom there were so many in London, was accustomed almost daily to pass Maudsley's little shop in Well Street, and being himself an amateur turner, he curiously inspected the articles from time to time exhibited in the window of the young mechanic. One day a more than ordinarily nice piece of screw-cutting made its appearance, on which he entered the shop to make inquiries as to the method by which it had been executed. He had a long conversation with Maudsley, with whom he was greatly pleased, and he was afterwards accustomed to look in upon him occasionally to see what new work was going on. Bacancourt was also on intimate terms with Brunel, who communicated to him the difficulty he had experienced in finding a mechanic of sufficient dexterity to execute his design of the block-making machinery. It immediately occurred to the former that Henry Maudsley was the very man to execute work of the elaborate character proposed, and he described to Brunel the new and beautiful tools which Maudsley had contrived for the purpose of ensuring accuracy and finish. Brunel at once determined to call upon Maudsley, and it was arranged that Bacancourt should introduce him, which he did, and after the interview which took place, Brunel promised to call again with the drawings of his proposed model. A few days passed, and Brunel called with the first drawing, done by himself, for he was a capital draughtsman, and used to speak of drawing as the alphabet of the engineer. The drawing only showed a little bit of the intended machine, and Brunel did not yet think it advisable to communicate to Maudsley the precise object he had in view, for inventors are usually very chary of explaining their schemes to others, for fear of being anticipated. Again Brunel appeared in Maudsley's shop with a further drawing, still not explaining his design. But at the third visit, immediately on looking at the fresh drawings he had brought, Maudsley exclaimed, "'Ah, now I see what you're thinking of. You want machinery for making blocks.' At this Brunel became more communicative, and explained his designs to the mechanic, who fully entered into his views and went on from that time forward, striving to his utmost to work out the inventor's conceptions and embody them in a practical machine. While still occupied on the models, which were begun in 1800, Maudsley removed his shop from Well Street, where he was assisted by a single journeyman, to Margaret Street, Cavendish Square, 
where he had greater room for carrying on his trade, and was also enabled to increase the number of his hands. The working models were ready for inspection by Sir Samuel Bentham and the Lords of the Admiralty in 1801, and having been fully approved by them, Brunel was authorised to proceed with the execution of the requisite machinery for the manufacture of the ship's blocks required for the Royal Navy. The whole of this machinery was executed by Henry Maudsley. It occupied him very fully for nearly six years, so that the manufacture of blocks by the new process was not begun until September 1808. We despair of being able to give any adequate description in words of the intricate arrangements and mode of action of the block-making machinery. Let anyone attempt to describe the much more simple and familiar process by which a shoemaker makes a pair of shoes, and he will find how inadequate mere words are to describe any mechanical operation. Suffice it to say that the machinery was of the most beautiful manufacture and finish, and even at this day will bear comparison with the most perfect machines which can be turned out with all the improved appliances of modern tools. The framing was of cast iron, while the parts exposed to violent and rapid action were all of the best hardened steel. In turning out the various parts, Maudsley found his slide-rest of indispensable value. Indeed, without this contrivance, it is doubtful whether machinery of so delicate and intricate a character could possibly have been executed. There was not one, but many machines in the series, each devoted to a special operation in the formation of a block. Thus there were various sawing machines, the straight cross-cutting saw, the circular cross-cutting saw, the reciprocating ripping saw, and the circular ripping saw. Then there were the boring machines, and the mortising machine, of beautiful construction for cutting the sheave holes, furnished with numerous chisels, each making from a hundred and ten to a hundred and fifty strokes a minute, and cutting at every stroke a chip as thick as a pasteboard, with the utmost precision. In addition to these were the corner saw for cutting off the corners of the block, the shaping machine for accurately forming the outside surfaces, the scoring engine for cutting the groove round the longest diameter of the block for the reception of the rope, and various other machines for drilling, riveting, and finishing the blocks, besides those for making the sheaves. The total number of machines employed in various operations of making a ship's block by the new method was forty-four, and after being regularly employed in Portsmouth Dockyard for upwards of fifty years, they are still as perfect in their action as the day on which they were erected. They constitute one of the most ingenious and complete collections of tools ever invented for making articles in wood, being capable of performing most of the practical operations of carpentry with the utmost accuracy and finish. The machines are worked by a steam engine of thirty-two horsepower, which is also used for various other dockyard purposes. Under the new system of block-making, it was found that the articles were better made, supplied with much greater rapidity and executed at greatly reduced cost. Only ten men with the new machinery could perform the work which before had required a hundred and ten men to execute, and not fewer than one hundred and sixty thousand blocks of various kinds and sizes could be turned out in a year, worth not less than five hundred and forty-one thousand pounds. The satisfactory execution of the block machinery brought Maudsley a large accession of fame and business and the premises in Margaret Street proving much too limited for his requirements, he again resolved to shift his quarters. 
he found a piece of ground suitable for his purpose in Westminster Road, Lambeth. Little more than a century since, it formed part of a marsh, the name of which is still retained in the adjoining street, its principal productions being bulrushes and willows, which were haunted in certain seasons by snipe and waterfowl. An enterprising riding-master had erected some premises on a part of the marsh, which he used for a riding-school. But the speculation not answering, they were sold, and Henry Maudsley became the proprietor. Hither he removed his machinery from Margaret Street in 1810, adding fresh plant from time to time as it was required. And with the aid of his late excellent partner, he built up the far-famed establishment of Maudsley, Field and Company. There he went on improving his old tools, and inventing new ones as the necessity for them arose, until the original slide-lathes used for making the block machinery became thrown into the shade by the comparatively gigantic machine-tools of the modern school. Yet the original lathes are still to be found in the collection of the firm in Westminster Road, and continue to do their daily quota of work with the same precision as they did when turned out of the hands of their inventor and maker some sixty years ago. It is unnecessary that we should describe in any great detail the further career of Henry Maudsley. The rest of his life was full of useful and profitable work to others as well as to himself. His business embraced the making of flour and sawmills, mint machinery, steam engines of all kinds. Before he left Margaret Street, in 1807, he took out a patent for the improvement of the steam engine, by which he much simplified its parts, and secured greater directness of action. His new engine was called the Pyramidal, because of its form, and was the first move towards what are now called direct-acting engines, in which the lateral movement of the piston is communicated by connecting rods to the rotary movement of the crankshaft. Mr. Naismith says of it that, on account of its great simplicity and great get-at-ability of parts, its compactness and self-contained steadiness, this engine has been the parent of a vast progeny, all more or less marked by the distinguished features of the original design, which is still in as high a favour as ever. Mr. Maudsley also directed his attention in like manner to the improvement of the marine engine, which he made so simple and effective as to become in a great measure the type of its class and it has held its ground almost unchanged for nearly thirty years. The Regent, which was the first steamboat that plied between London and Margate, was fitted with engines by Maudsley in 1816, and it proved the forerunner of a vast number of marine engines, the manufacture of which soon became one of the most important branches of mechanical engineering. Another of Mr. Maudsley's inventions was his machine for punching boiler-plates, by which the production of ironwork of many kinds was greatly facilitated. This improvement originated in the contract which he held for some years for supplying the Royal Navy with iron plates for ships' tanks. The operations of shearing and punching had before been very imperfectly done by hand, with great expenditure of labour. To improve the style of the work and lessen the labour, Maudsley invented the machine now in general use by which the holes punched in the iron plate are exactly equidistant, and the subsequent operation of riveting is greatly facilitated. One of the results of the improved method was the great saving which was at once effected in the cost of preparing the plates to receive the rivets, the price of which was reduced from seven shillings per tank to ninepence. 
he continued to devote himself to the last to the improvement of the lathe, in his opinion the master machine, the life and soul of engine turning, of which the planing, screw-cutting and other machines in common use are but modifications. In one of the early lathes which he contrived to be made, the mandrel was nine inches in diameter. It was driven by wheel-gearing, like a crane motion, and adapted to different speeds. Some of his friends, on first looking at it, said it was going too fast. But he lived to see work projected on so large a scale as to prove that his conceptions were just, and that he had merely anticipated by a few years the mechanical progress of his time. His large removable bar lathe was a highly important tool of the same kind. It was used to turn surfaces many feet in diameter. While it could be used for boring wheels or the slide rods of marine engines, it could turn a roller or cylinder twice or three times the diameter of its own centres from the ground level, and indeed could drive roundwork of any diameter that would clear the roof of the shop. This was therefore an almost universal tool, capable of very extensive uses. Indeed, much of the work now executed by means of special tools, such as the planing or slotting machine, was then done in the lathe, which was used as a cutter-shaping machine, fitted with various appliances according to the work. Maudsley's love of accuracy also led him from an early period to study the object of improved screw-cutting. The importance of this department of mechanism can scarcely be overrated. The solidity and permanency of most mechanical structures mainly depending upon the employment of the screw, at the same time that the parts can be readily separated for renewal or repair. Anyone can form an idea of the importance of the screw as an element in mechanical construction by examining, say, a steam engine, and counting the number of screws employed in holding it together. Previous to the time at which the subject occupied the attention of our mechanic, the tools used for making screws were of the most rude and inexact kind. The screws were for the most part cut by hand, the small by filing, the larger by chipping and filing. In consequence of the great difficulty in making them, as few were used as possible, and cotters and cotterills or forelocks were employed instead. Screws, however, were to a certain extent indispensable, and each manufacturing establishment made them after their own fashion. There was utter want of uniformity. No system was observed as to pitch, i.e. the number of threads to the inch, nor was any rule followed as to the form of those threads. Every bolt and nut was a sort of speciality in itself, and neither owed nor admitted of any community with its neighbours. To such an extent was this irregularity carried that all bolts and their corresponding nuts had to be marked as belonging to each other, and any mixing of them together led to endless trouble, hopeless confusion, and enormous expense. Indeed, none but those who lived in the comparatively early days of machine manufacture can form an adequate idea of the annoyance occasioned by the want of system in this branch of detail, or duly appreciate the services rendered by Maudsley to mechanical engineering by the practical measure which he was among the first to introduce for its remedy. In his system of screw-cutting machinery, his taps and dies and screw-tackle generally, he laid the foundations of all that has since been done in this essential branch of machine construction, in which he was so ably followed up by several of the eminent mechanics brought up in his school, and more especially by Joseph Clement and Joseph Whitworth. 
One of his earliest self-acting screw lathes, moved by a guide screw and wheels, after the plan followed by the latter engineer, cut screws of large diameter and of any required pitch. As an illustration of its completeness and accuracy, we may mention that by its means a screw five feet in length and two inches in diameter was cut with fifty threads to the inch, the nut to fit on it being twelve inches long and containing six hundred threads. This screw was principally used for dividing scales for astronomical purposes, and by its means divisions were produced so minute that they could not be detected without the aid of a magnifier. The screw, which was sent for exhibition to the Society of Arts, is still carefully preserved amongst the specimens of Maudsley's handicraft at the Lambeth Works, and is a piece of delicate work which every skilled mechanic will thoroughly appreciate. Yet the tool by which this fine piece of turning was produced was not an exceptional tool, but was daily employed in the ordinary work of the manufactory. Like every good workman who takes pride in his craft, he kept his tools in first-rate order, clean and tidily arranged, so that he could lay his hand upon the thing he wanted at once, without loss of time. They are still preserved in the state in which he left them, and strikingly illustrate his love of order, nattiness, and dexterity. Mr. Naismith says of him that you could see the man's character in whatever work he turned out, and as the connoisseur in art will exclaim at the sight of a picture, that is Turner, or that is Stansfield, detecting the hand of the master in it. So the experienced mechanician, at the sight of one of his machines or engines, will be equally ready to exclaim, that is Maudsley, for the characteristic style of the master mind is as clear to the experienced eye in the case of the finished machine as the touches of the artist's pencil are in the case of the finished picture. Every mechanical contrivance that became the subject of his study came forth from his hand and mind rearranged, simplified, and made new, with the impress of his individuality stamped upon it. He at once stripped the subject of all unnecessary complications, for he possessed a wonderful faculty of knowing what to do without, the result of his clearness of insight into mechanical adaptions, and the accurate and well-defined notions he had formed of the precise object to be accomplished. Every member or separate machine in the system of block machinery, says Mr. Naismith, is full of Maudsley's presence. And in that machinery, as constructed by him, is to be found the parent of every engineering tool, by the aid of which we are now achieving such great things in mechanical construction. To the tools of which Maudsley furnished the prototypes, are we mainly indebted for the perfection of our textile machinery, our locomotives, our marine engines, and the various implements of art, agriculture, and of war. If any one who can enter into the details of the subject will be at pains to analyse, if I may so term it, the machinery of our modern engineering workshops, he will find in all of them the strongly marked features of Maudsley's parent machine, the slide-rest and the slide-system, whether it be a planing machine, a slotting machine, a slide-lathe, or any of the other wonderful tools which are now enabling us to accomplish so much in mechanism. One of the things in which Mr. Maudsley took just pride was in the excellence of his work. In designing and executing it, his main object was to do it in the best possible style and finish, altogether irrespective of the probable pecuniary results. This he regarded in the light of a duty he could not and would not evade, 
independent of its being a good investment for securing future reputation. And the character which he thus obtained, although at times purchased at great cost, eventually justified the soundness of his views. As the eminent Mr. Penn, the head of the great engineering firm, is accustomed to say, I cannot afford to turn out second-rate work. So Mr. Maudsley found both character and profit in striving after the highest excellence in his productions. He was a particular man, even in the minutest details. Thus one of the points on which he insisted, apparently a trivial matter, but in reality of considerable importance in mechanical construction, was the avoidance of sharp interior angles in ironwork, whether wrought or cast, for he found that in such interior angles cracks were apt to originate. When the article was a tool, the sharp angle was less pleasant to the hand as well as to the eye. In the application of his favourite round or hollow corner system, as for instance in the case of the points of junction of the arms of a wheel with its centre or rim, he used to illustrate its superiority by holding up his hand and pointing out the nice round hollow at the junction of the fingers, or by referring to the junction of the branches to the stem of a tree. Hence he made a point of having all the angles of his machine framework nicely rounded off on their exterior, and carefully hollowed in their interior angles. In forging such articles he would so shape his metal before bending that the result should be the right hollow or round corner when bent, the anticipated external angle falling into its proper place when the bar so shaped was brought to its ultimate form. In all such matters of detail he was greatly assisted by his early dexterity as a blacksmith, and he used to say that to be a good smith you must be able to see in the bar of iron the object proposed to be got out of it by the hammer or the tool just as the sculptor is supposed to see in the block of stone the statue which he proposes to bring forth from it by his mind and his chisel. Mr. Maudsley did not allow himself to forget his skill in the use of the hammer, and to the last he took pleasure in handling it, sometimes in the way of business, and often through sheer love of his art. Mr. Naismith says, It was one of my duties, while acting as assistant in his beautiful little workshop, to keep a stock of handy bars of lead which he had placed on a shelf under his workbench, which was of thick slate for the more ready making of his usual illustrative sketches of machinery and chalk. His love of iron forging led him to take delight in forging the models of work to be ultimately done in iron, and cold lead, being about the same malleability as red-hot iron, furnished a convenient material for illustrating the method to be adopted with a large work. I well remember the smile of satisfaction that lit up his honest face when he met with a good excuse for having a go at one of the bars of lead with a hammer and anvil, as if it were a bar of iron. And how, with a few dexterous strokes, punchings of holes, and rounded notches, he would give the rough bar or block its desired form. He always aimed at working it out of the solid as much as possible, so as to avoid the risk of any concealed defect to which ironwork built up of welded parts is so liable and when he had thus cleverly finished his model, he used forthwith to send for the foreman of smiths, and show him how he was to instruct his men as to the proper forging of the desired object. One of Mr. Maudsley's old workmen, when informing us of the skilful manner in which he handled the file, said, It was a pleasure to see him handle a tool of any kind, but he was quite splendid with an eighteen-inch file. The vice at which he worked was constructed by himself and it was perfect of its kind. 
It could be turned round to any position on the bench. The jaws would turn from the horizontal to the perpendicular, or any other position, upside down if necessary, and they would open twelve inches parallel. Mr. Naismith furnishes the following further recollections of Mr. Maudsley, which will serve in some measure to illustrate his personal character. Henry Maudsley, he says, lived in the days of snuff-taking, which, unhappily as I think, has given way to the cigar-smoking system. He enjoyed his occasional pinch very much. It generally preceded the giving out of a new notion or suggestion for an improvement or alteration of some job in hand. As with most of those who enjoy their pinch, about three times as much was taken between the fingers as was utilised by the nose, and the consequence was that a large, unconsumed surplus collected in the folds of the master's waistcoat as he sat working at his bench. Sometimes a file, or a tool, or some small piece of work would drop, and then it was my duty to go down on my knees and fetch it up. On such occasions, while waiting for the article, he would take the opportunity of pulling down his waistcoat front, which had become disarranged by his energetic working at the bench, and many a time I have come up with a dropped article half-blinded by the snuff jerked into my eyes from off his waistcoat front. All the while he was at work, he would be narrating some incident of his past life, or describing the progress of some new and important undertaking, in illustrating which he would use the bit of chalk ready to his hand upon the slate bench before him, which was thus in almost constant use. One of the pleasures he indulged in while he sat at work was music, of which he was very fond, more particularly of melodies and airs which took a lasting hold on his mind. Hence he was never without an assortment of musical boxes, some of which were of a large size. One of these he would set a-going on his library table, which was next to his workshop, and with the door open he was thus enabled to enjoy the music while he sat working at his bench. Intimate friends would frequently call upon him and sit by the hour, but though talking all the while, he never dropped his work, but continued employed on it with as much zeal as if he were only beginning his life. His old friend Sir Samuel Bentham was a frequent caller in this way, as well as Sir Isambard Brunel, while occupied with his Thames Tunnel works, and Mr. Chantry, who was accustomed to consult him about the casting of his bronze statuary. Mr. Barton of the Royal Mint, and Mr. Donkin the engineer, with whom Mr. Barton was associated in ascertaining and devising a correct system of dividing the standard yard, and many others had like audience of Mr. Maudsley in his little workshop, for friendly converse, for advice, on affairs of business. It was a special and constant practice with him on a workman's holiday, or on a Sunday morning, to take a walk through his workshops when all was quiet, and then and there examine the various jobs in hand. On such occasions he carried with him a piece of chalk, with which, in a neat and very legible hand, he would record his remarks in the most pithy and sometimes caustic terms. Any evidence of want of correctness in setting things square or in flat filing, which he held in high esteem, or untidiness in not sweeping down the bench and laying the tools in order, was sure to have a record in a chalk made upon the spot. If it was a mild case, the reproof was recorded in gentle terms, simply to show that the master's eye was on the workman but where the case deserved hearty approbation, or required equally hearty reproof, the words employed were few, but went straight to the mark. These chalk jottings on the bench were held in the highest respect by the workmen themselves, 
whether they conveyed praise or blame, as they were sure to be deserved, and when the men next assembled it soon became known all over the shop who had received the honour or otherwise of one of the master's bench memoranda in chalk. The vigilant, the critical, and yet withal the generous eye of the master being over all his workmen, it will readily be understood how Maudsley's works came to be regarded as a first-class school for mechanical engineers. Every one felt that the quality of his workmanship was fully understood, and, if he had the right stuff in him, and was determined to advance, that his progress in skill would be thoroughly appreciated. It is scarcely necessary to point out how this feeling, pervading the establishment, must have operated not only in maintaining the quality of the work, but in improving the character of the workman. The results were felt in the increased practical ability of a large number of artisans, some of whom subsequently rose to the highest distinction. Indeed, it may be said that what Oxford and Cambridge are in letters, workshops such as Maudsley and Penn's are in mechanics. Nor can Oxford and Cambridge men be prouder of the connection with their respective colleges than mechanics such as Whitworth, Naismith, Roberts, Muir and Lewis are of their connection with the school of Maudsley. For all these distinguished engineers at one time or another formed part of his working staff, and were trained to the exercise of their special abilities under his own eye. The result has been a development of mechanical ability the like of which perhaps is not to be found in any age or country. Although Mr. Maudsley was an unceasing inventor, he troubled himself very little about patenting his inventions. He considered that the superiority of his tools and the excellence of his work were his surest protection. Yet he had sometimes the annoyance of being threatened with actions by persons who had patented the inventions which he himself had made. He was much beset by inventors, sometimes sadly out at elbows, but always with a boundless fortune looming before them. To such as applied to him for advice in a frank and candid spirit, he did not hesitate to speak freely, and communicate the results of his great experience in the most liberal manner and to poor and deserving men of this class he was often found as ready to help them with his purse as with his still more valuable advice. He had a singular way of estimating the abilities of those who thus called upon him about their projects. The highest order of man was marked in his own mind at a hundred degrees, and by this ideal standard he measured others, setting them down at ninety degrees, eighty degrees, and so on. A very first-rate man he would set down at ninety-five degrees, but men of this rank were exceedingly rare. After an interview with one of the applicants to him for advice, he would say to his pupil Naismith, "'Jem, I think that man may be set down at forty-five degrees, but he might be worked up to sixty degrees.' A common enough way of speaking of the working of a steam-engine, but a somewhat novel, though by no means an inexpressive method, of estimating the powers of an individual but while he had much toleration for modest and meritorious inventors, he had a great dislike for secret-mongers, schemers of the close, cunning sort, and usually made short work of them. He had an almost equal aversion for what he called the fiddle-faddle inventors, with their omnibus patents, into which they packed every possible thing that their noodles could imagine. Only once or twice in a century, said he, does a great inventor appear, and yet here we have a set of fellows, each taking out as many patents as will fill a cart, some of them embodying not a single original idea, 
but including in their specifications all manner of modifications of well-known processes, as well as anticipating the arrangements which may become practicable in the progress of mechanical improvement. Many of these patents he regarded as mere pitfalls to catch the unwary, and he spoke of such inventors as the pests of the profession. The personal appearance of Henry Maudsley was in correspondence with his character. He was of a commanding presence, for he stood full six feet two inches in height, a massive, portly man. His face was round, full, and lit up with good humour. A fine, large, square forehead, with a grand constructive order dominated over all, and his bright, keen eye gave energy and life to his countenance. He was thoroughly jolly and good-natured, yet full of force and character. It was a positive delight to hear his cheerful, ringing laugh. He was cordial in manner, and his frankness set everybody at their ease who had occasion to meet him, even for the first time. No one could be more faithful and consistent in his friendships, nor more firm in the hour of adversity. In fine, Henry Maudsley was, as described by his friend Mr. Naismith, the very beau ideal of an honest, upright, straightforward, hard-working, intelligent Englishman. A severe cold which he caught on his way home from one of his visits to France was the cause of his death, which occurred on the 14th of February, 1831. The void which his decease caused was long and deeply felt, not only by his family and his large circle of friends, but by his workmen, who admired him for his industrial skill, and loved him because of his invariably manly, generous, and upright conduct towards them. He directed that he should be buried in Woolwich Parish Churchyard, where a cast-iron tomb, made to his own design, was erected over his remains. He had ever a warm heart for Woolwich, where he had been born and brought up. He often returned to it, sometimes to carry his mother a share of his week's wages while she lived and afterwards to refresh himself with the sight of the neighbourhood with which he had been so familiar when a boy. He liked its green common, with the soldiers about it, Shooter's Hill, with its outlook over Kent and down the valley of the Thames, the river, busy with shipping, and the royal craft loading and unloading their armaments at the dockyard wharves. He liked the clangour of the arsenal smithy, where he had first learned his art, and all the busy industry of the place. It was natural, therefore, that being proud of his early connection with Woolwich, he should wish to lie there. And Woolwich, on its part, let us add, has equal reason to be proud of Henry Maudsley. End of chapter 12